Welcome to The Movement Movement, the podcast for people who want the truth about having a healthy, happy, strong body. Remember, your body was meant to move. Now here's your host, Stephen Sashen. Could becoming a better runner be as simple as using a rubber band? I don't know. Sounds weird, but we're going to find out on today's episode of the Movement Movement Podcast, the podcast for people who want to know the truth about what it takes to have a happy, healthy, strong body, starting with the feet first, because those things are your foundation. We're going to look at the mythology, the propaganda, sometimes the simple lies that people have been telling you about what it takes to run, to walk, to hike, to dance, to play, to lift, whatever it is you like to do enjoyably and healthily. I'm Stephen Sashin from ZeroShoes.com, the host of this podcast. Many of you know that. And we like to say that we're trying to create a movement or a movement movement because we're trying to make natural movement the obvious, better, healthy choice the way natural food currently is. And that means you're involved. We are doing this with your help. All the people who've been experiencing the benefits and fun of natural movement and sharing that with other people, that's what's making the movement movement. And if you want to be part of that, the easiest thing to do, go to www.join the movement movement. And that's where you can find previous episodes of this podcast. You'll be able to find future episodes as well, but not immediately. Try that one out and also find the different ways you can engage with us. So where you can find us on YouTube and Facebook and Instagram and all the places that you engage with podcasts and where you can share and like and give us a thumbs up and subscribe if you're on YouTube and click the bell on YouTube so you automatically hear about future episodes. I mean, you get the idea. In short, if you want to be part of the tribe, please subscribe. All right, let's jump in, shall we, after that long, ridiculous intro. I've got Cole Simpson and Kara Welker here, and I'm just going to start with the fun part and just with what we already teased, you guys have seemingly proven that people can run better with just something like a piece of rubber tubing or let's say rubber band for the fun of it. Is that correct? That is what we showed. Yes. <laughs> well, so, in fact, well, before you even introduce yourselves, because I want you guys to talk about who the hell you are, but before we even do that, let's cut to the end of the story. What did you find with this wacky intervention? What were the results that you found that people might experience if they were going to try something similar? So basically, the shortest explanation is we found that if you tie your left foot to your right foot with a rubber band, it can make running easier, by which I mean it takes less energy to run at the same speed than running without your feet tied together. And this is particularly fun because if you think about you know, the classic elementary school prank where you tie someone's shoelaces together and they take off chasing you and fall down, this seems like a rather unintuitive <coughs> result. But uh, that's basically what we've shown. So is what you're implying that if as kids we had elastic laces on our shoes, instead of it being a prank, it would have been the way to turn all Americans into awesome runners? I mean, I think it would depend on the stiffness of that rubber band. (laughs) Ah, good point. If someone decided to pull a prank on you and put a rubber band that was not optimal between your legs, then it wouldn't work. But with the proper... Proper conditions, possibly. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to go for the extreme position for the fun of it. That we would have, we would have destroyed everything involving the Three Stooges just with that simple addition of an elastic lace. So, all right. Now that we've kind of teased everyone with where we're going to go, and I want to talk about how you got there and more specifics, obviously. But the big question, of course, is who the hell are you? Why are you here? And how did you come to start researching this thing that led to the results that we're going to talk about? Yeah. So. We're both PhD students at Stanford University. I'm a PhD student in mechanical engineering. I'm in bioengineering, but I did my master's in mechanical engineering, so I kind of cross both of those fields. Right. We collaborate with a lot of different research labs here at Stanford. We're both kind of primarily housed in the CHARM lab, which is the collaborative haptics 
and robotics and medicine lab. It's important to know where you actually work. <laughs> I really didn't want to mess that one up. So. <laughs> there goes that grant money. <laughs> yeah, so we were primarily housed there, but we've also worked with the, I'm going to let Kara do these. Neuromuscular Biomechanics Lab, and yeah. also the Stanford Biomechatronics Lab. Well, so I want to know what other, before we dive into the topic of this one, what other things do you guys do in those labs, both of which sound super interesting? Right. So the Charm Lab does primarily uh, haptics, which are robots that touch you back, uh, essentially. But we also have a big focus on kind of creative new robots and also things that interact with people, both for kind of daily communication and also for surgical applications. Interesting. I don't know if this is relevant for anything you guys have done. So I was an early biofeedback pioneer way back when in like 74. And, and I've always had a fascination with things like prosthetic devices. And, and I knew a guy who made just sort of traditional prosthetics, especially lower limb prosthetics. And I said, why don't you guys just do, he, he was complaining that the problem that you have, if you have a amputation just above the knee is that with a prosthetic, you never know what the angle is of the prosthetic knee joint. I said, well, why don't you just attach an actuator to that and stick basically anything on any part of your body that's going to give you feedback about that angle. And you, your brain will eventually figure that out and be able to know where your quote foot is in space. And this was, you know, eight, nine years ago. I mean, people are only now seemingly starting to do some of this stuff that seemed screamingly obvious and very accessible for a long time. Yeah. So that's pretty much exactly what my current well so since obviously this is something i'm interested in tell me more so yeah i am not only focused on different ways of providing sensory feedback to the person from the prosthetic foot but also how that person could control the prosthetic foot with so if, if you think of, if you're providing sensory feedback at the hand and have some idea of what the ankle is doing, you could also go the other way and say, oh, I want to control what the ankle is doing by like moving my hand. In Interesting. It's amazing to me how neuroplastic we are, especially around things like this, where yeah. you very quickly, your brain very quickly figures out how to do things that you never thought were possible. I remember, when, in fact, when I was in high school, which is um, sadly a super long time ago. Jesus, sorry, this was 40 years ago, that I, the story I'm about to tell. And I, did never, I never thought I would be at the age where I could say 40 years ago. So 40 years ago, I brought in just a, an EMG, electromyograph, into my psychology class in high school. And I attached it to various parts of my body. And I changed the amount of, well, the signal that I was generating just by doing relaxation techniques. I just dropped all the tension in certain parts of my body sort of deliberately. And after it was done, the psychology teacher came up to me and said, wow, I didn't know that was actually possible. And I'm thinking, wow, why are you teaching psychology? So, <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, and so other than what we're going to talk about, Cole, what have you been playing with and working on? Uh, well, I've been working on super other kind of super simple hacks. I've been working more in the domain of people that have had strokes that we're trying to give them a helping hand in performing some of the therapies that help them recover. After Interesting. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, we could do that all day long. Let's jump into rubber band <laughs> things. So how did this project process, et cetera. How did this even come about? Right. So I guess Elliot Hawks and I had started working together on the stroke rehabilitation stuff. And uh, I think we're both equally excited about crazy counterintuitive ideas. And we 
had been talking with uh, some people that work on exoskeletons, uh, namely Connor Walsh at Harvard, who Elliot had met at a conference about certain exoskeletons and how some of the actuators Elliot had been working on could be used for exoskeletons. And then we, well, we kind of said, well, how hard can it be? So we, <laughs> hold on, wait, wait, hold on. I got to stop you right there. So when people ask me how I, I, so I had a software company that I started way back when. And when people asked me how that happened, I said, I had this idea and I uttered the five dangerous entrepreneurial words. How hard could this be? Right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We said, well, we don't, we're looking at all the papers that have been published in the last several years and no one seems to have really gotten much out on running. Now, of course, people have, changed that. But at the time, there wasn't really anything out on exoskeletons for running that had been successful. So we pulled up all the graphs, looked at all the mechanics, and then and we were looking at these graphs, pouring over the lab bench one day and just said, I've got a funny idea. It looks like here, you could just tie a rubber band to something, and it would help with the, these muscles that are swinging the leg about the hip. And I said, well, what do we attach it to? The other leg. Uh, so otherwise you would just be running around in circles exactly. which so, could be a very entertaining defensive move but i can't see it being really well and the other thing that was really great about this was that uh, one of our collaborators steve collins talked about whenever you're doing this exoskeleton research it takes months or years before you have a functional prototype we had a functional prototype five minutes later. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was, you know, that was like fruit fly years. You, it, took, it took you many years in fruit fly years. Well, that's true. And, but the process, you know, one of the kind of frustrating things sometimes with science is that you really need to, to deeply investigate this and really prove what, you, what you're suspecting here. Right. And so... While it took us five minutes to make our first functional prototype, it then took another two years or so to really dig in and kind of convince ourselves and all of our collaborators that this Legit. is what was happening. Well, I want to back up to the, to the first part. So the data you were looking at that made you think, hey, if we could only make that not happen, I have a suspicion about what you were seeing, but can you say more about what it was you were specifically seeing that you wanted to correct? Right. So we were specifically looking at angles that the the hip, the knee, and the ankle go through during a running cycle. Uh, so we had on one sheet of paper these angles, and then on another sheet of paper we had the torques pull some together and produce. And so we were kind of holding these on top of each other saying, okay, well, with our simple tools, we're looking for places where the muscles are active, but what they're doing is slowing down the leg. So right. basically... This is known in the biomechanics world as eccentric contraction. It's known by the same term in other worlds also. <laughs> you, you say that. I don't think my parents know this word. So, oh, and well, and there's actually a lot of people who, who misunderstand or misinterpret what an eccentric contraction is. They think it's just like in weightlifting, they think it's just, you know, lowering the weight more slowly. It's like, that's not, I mean, technically that's an eccentric contraction, but it's not the same thing that we're referring to. Nonetheless, so seeing the things... Let me let me kind of cut to the chase. It sounds like what you were seeing mechanically was the same thing that people do when they simply overstride when they're running. Yeah. So I think what you're referring to is that when you're you're overstriding, you've got to or what's likely happening is that you're not using those muscles enough as a break 
to slow the leg down fast enough, and so it goes too far. It overshoots. Uh, so too, too long of a stride. Yeah. Even if you take whatever stride, even if you're taking a very short stride, there's always going to be a period of time where you need to slow Correct. that front leg and then re-accelerate it backwards Correct. Um, no matter what the stride frequency is. Right. But if you're reaching your leg way out in front of your body, A, it could, it could be that you're waiting too long to slow it down and you've got more, you've got to cover when you start accelerating backwards, when you start bringing your leg back towards your center of mass. And more, I mean, the thing that I always point out when people do that is your hips are in the weakest position when, you've over, when you're over striding like that. So you're not using these muscles that are designed to be moving you by doing hip extension, which is just a little bit behind you. So uh, this seems to be, and, and, and sprinters in particular, it's typically the slowing down phase where sprinters pull hamstrings. I mean, the eccentric thing is typically, which is why for sprinters in particular, the, the, the big exercise du jour is Nordic hamstring curls. It's doing things to do an eccentric hamstring strengthening exercise since that seems to be where most injuries occur. Right. So one thing that we found, so as Kara said, anytime that you're, you're running at basically any speed, uh, you are using these muscles to slow the leg down. And as you're pointing out that the timing of that is pretty important and, the, and kind of how hard you are working to slow those, those, the leg down is important. Um, and one thing that we saw when we put these rubber bands on our runners was that they tended, we, we had everyone running on a treadmill and so the speed was fixed. Right. Uh, and what we saw is that they were taking shorter, faster steps. Now this partly due to the fact that there's a rubber band there. That's yeah, they, you tied their legs together. Yeah. yeah, we tied their legs together. So there's only so far they can spread their legs apart. <laughs> but the interesting thing was that uh, people were still able to run with their natural stride length. Right. So we did this with a metronome where we said, all right, here's your normal stride frequency. Match that with your steps with rubber band and everything. So people were still able to run in a normal way. Mm-hmm. chose to change the way that they they ran. They chose to take these shorter strides. And so we were basically using a VO2 max machine to measure the oxygen that they're breathing and showed that the reason that they were taking these shorter, faster strides is because that actually took less energy than forcing themselves to do their normal gait pattern. Now, that seems on the face of it to be countering your overstriding problem no, no, no. I, 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 quite the opposite. I mean, because the, the issue with overstriding, I mean, there are a number of things, but the, the simplest thing with overstriding is you're not, using, you're, you're not using your musculature efficiently to begin with. I mean, you have uh, significant braking forces. When you land with your foot way in front of your body, you're slamming the brakes on every time you land. The amount of reacceleration you have to do just to get your foot underneath your center of mass is high, and you're not using you're not aligning your joints, let alone your muscles, ligaments, and tendons in a way to effectively use your lower extremities in a way that's more efficient. And that's the fundamental argument about natural movement. And I won't even say barefoot because that's, uh, that's been the way it's been conflated, but it's really about more natural running. And the simple thing is land with your feet as much under your body as you can. And, and then, I mean, there's some other things as well, like keeping your core basically tight. You want to be a relatively tight spring, but the first one is get your feet under your body. And one of the fastest way, I, so you discovered something kind of backwards that I like. One of the easiest ways to get people to start getting their feet underneath their body is to ask them to pick up their cadence slightly, like anywhere between five and 10%. Because when you're running at the same speed with a faster cadence, you just can't reach out 
an overstride so much. It's just not possible to keep the cadence up while you're still doing that. For you, it was kind of the other way around. They naturally picked up their cadence because they were being constrained a little bit, but in doing so ended up being more efficient because their biomechanics were better. Right. But we also did the control experiment of, in addition to having them run at the slower frequency that they were with the rubber band, we had them run at the faster frequency without the rubber band, just to make sure that that wasn't the cause of energy that we were seeing. And so we saw that with the, at the faster frequency without the rubber band, their energy, people generally chose a fairly optimal stride frequency, at least our subject. So at that slower or at that faster frequency, it was a little bit less energy optimal, but the savings that we gave them with the band kind of lowered that energy cost. I wonder, so, and when you measured this, how long had they been running with the bands? Yes, exactly. So (laughs) I love it when I ask a good question. Yeah, no, it's, um, at this point they had been running uh, three consecutive days. This was the third consecutive day of running with the rubber band. 20, 20 minutes a day. Yeah. So they were running with the rubber band and then 20 minutes without as I kind of like flip flop back and forth, measure each, each scenario. So they had been running in both scenarios for a couple of days beforehand. This was not their first exposure. Had you, did you have the opportunity to check in with them at some later point, a month later, two months later, six months later? Apparently, I'm just giving numbers for later. Yeah, <laughs> two years later, six years later. <laughs> 3.5 weeks later. <laughs> no, we, we did not do that follow-up experiment yet. That would be but, interesting what, there, for a couple of reasons. One is that in learning a new movement pattern uh, or laying down new motor pathways, the the, tech, the the best technology for doing that is with a sort of, let's call it diminishing intermittent reinforcement, if you will, or increased intermittent reinforcement. So basically have them run with the rubber band for a little while, take it off, put it back on and just you know switch back and forth until they feel the, the, the similarity or basically so their stride is essentially the same. And then over time, more time with the rubber band off than on to see if that locks in. And it doesn't take that long. Usually you can do this within four to eight weeks tops, depending on the person. People have, have different skills with neuroplasticity and learning new movement patterns. But by and large, the basic thing of, you know, on off and then in, then increasing the amount of off time. Irene Davis does this in her lab at Harvard, a similar method for getting people to retrain their gait. And then she'll check with them a month later or two months later and see, you know, how well it's stuck. And the answer is usually pretty well if you do that, that process. So I'm just really, we don't have the data, of course, but it'd be, I'm very curious to know about the runners that were in your experiment about what happened to them after the fact and what changed and et cetera. Right. I think this is a good time to talk about Jesse's paper. So one of our collaborators, Jessica Seilinger, who's now at Queen's University in, in Kingston. Queen's and Kingston. I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> she did a paper walking on a treadmill, so not running. But what they did was they put an exoskeleton on the, the walker's knees. They changed the, basically it said uh, they need to take slower steps to be more efficient. Steps. Yeah, this this is just for scientific yeah, yeah, yeah. For the experiment, not actually what we want to do. Right, right. Um, and what she what she found was that there's some portion of the population, I don't remember, 30% or something like that. Uh, some number of people are, are kind of explorers, and they will figure this out on their own. But there's a, another section of the population. They will just keep doing the inefficient thing. Ad infinitum. Right. So then 
what she did there is took these people that would just would not figure out the new optimum and gave them that metronome, basically showed them right. another way. And anyone that they showed an easier way, even if it wasn't the optimal way, would start looking for that optimal way and eventually find it. So I have a, so my undergraduate research was in cognitive aspects of motor skill acquisition. And I sort of taught a whole bunch of crazy ass things, but we did a lot of research on, let's call it patterns of processing information is the best way of describing it. So one of the things that we found that is going to seem unrelated, but surprisingly isn't, is that people will process information through a kind of semantic filter based on their the first language that they learned or the language they're first fluent in, which I know sounds crazy, but what it means is that we're constantly filtering information in a way that's already similar to some other way we filter information, the way we do it with language. Now, what's relevant here is that from doing that research, the whole idea of, about teaching natural running or barefoot running, I say, look, if you want to run barefoot, it's simple. Take your shoes off, find a nice smooth, hard surface, because that's going to give you the most feedback. Go for a super short run, like 20 seconds. And if you weren't having fun, do something different so you are. Now, that's my super abbreviated version. But the interesting thing is I've identified, just from working with people, what I call four neurological types. One is people who they just can't even feel anything. So that do something different until you're having fun. It won't matter because they can't feel if it hurt or not. And these are people who can go for a run and say that they're fine. And then they've ripped the bottom of their feet out. They basically have just sort of shut down the brain map that tells them where their feet are. So their brain map is so de-differentiated. They're just not getting the information about what's going on. These are people, if you say to them, are you hungry? And they say, yes. You say, how do you know? They go, what do you mean? You go, <laughs> like, do you feel a hole in the pit of your stomach? Something like that. They go, what? No, I'm just hungry. I mean, they just don't have a life below the neck, basically. The second group of people, they can tell if it hurts, but they don't have great proprioceptive skills. So you ask them to do something like put their arm parallel to the ground, and it looks like they're at a far right rally or pointing at your shoes. And they don't know the difference. And getting some sort of external feedback, like audio feedback or visual feedback, is what they need to start getting in line with reality. I've had people assure me that they showed me a picture of one of our shoes and that they've worn the heel out. And they go, Something's wrong with the rubber. I go, Well, yeah, you're rubbing it by overstriding and heel striking. And they go, well, no, I don't, I don't do that. I go, well, it's just physics. I mean, there's material that's gone from your heel. You're applying excessive horizontal force there. And they go, I don't, I don't do that. And they go, send me a video. And then you, they get the video or I get the video and you see them overstriding and heel striking. And then I show that to them on video and they go, yeah, but I don't do that. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> okay. So they just need a lot more. They just need more feedback to get in touch with reality. The third group of people, they just need some cues because they'll figure it out eventually. And just a couple of cues will speed up the process. Something just like, you know, try and walk at a different pace or whatever it is, is sometimes all they need. And the fourth group, they're naturals and they'll just figure it out really quickly. The problem they have is they have so much fun that they start, they get tired and they revert to one of the previous stages. But so, but I love that you're pointing this one out because I haven't heard of anyone who's sort of approaching this from a kind of cognitive standpoint. You'll have to introduce me to anyone else who is, because that's obviously something I find really interesting that just doesn't get discussed. When people say, how long is it going to take me to adjust? I go, I, I don't know. I mean, we got to figure out who you are and that's a whole other can of worms. Right. Right. And that's something that is kind of like an open question exoskeleton research. Now that we have technologies to kind of be changing certain parameters and kind of figure out how people are adapting to that. There's a lot of open questions about how do people adapt? How quickly do they adapt? And how can you kind of 
categorize people that are going to adapt in a certain way? It, that's an interesting question because like with my little breakdown there, I don't even have a way of having people self-identify for that, let alone some sort of test that we could apply to say, oh, you are a, and here's what you should do. Because like the first group, my argument would be they just need to start walking around barefoot more to wake up the whole neural pathway. And the second group, you know, they just need some video feedback, et cetera. But I can't figure out a way to, to identify those in advance of having them do something and seeing what goes wrong. Interesting. I'm afraid we don't have any yeah, we of those tools either. either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't think you Very did. Cool. We couldn't predict that. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I, I think there is a way. And I, so here's a weird thing. Backing up to the research we were doing on what we called language-bound and language-optional, there's a whole bunch of wacky tests that you can do. The original test for language-bound and language-optional, you put headphones on someone and you present it's called dichotic listening. You're presenting two words in their ear with a time delay between the two words. And the interesting thing is whether the words combine in a way that turns into a word or not. So for example, let's say we use the word rand and band, and we present them band, rand, with some amount of time in between. So you hear band, and then a quarter second or a half second or a second later, you hear rand. And the question is, which letter did you hear first? Well, you know, B and R can combine into brand and people will hear brand. Certain people will hear brand no matter what the time difference is. And so they go, yeah, B is first and they get it right every time. But then you put R first. So it's rand band and 83% of the people would still say the B came first because they hear brand. They can't hear raband. They just literally can't hear it. And then the language optional people, they can hear it and it almost doesn't matter what the, the time difference is. Well, so that's the first test. That was like the, the penultimate, not the penultimate, that's the ultimate test for whether someone was language bound or language optional. But then there's a whole bunch of things that, that were discovered that language bound people always did one way and language optional people did another way. So I don't know that either of you are old enough to have uh, ever used a rotary dial telephone. I'm assuming not. Yeah. Yeah. My, my parents had one on the wall of the... No shit. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you know how they work. You know there's things. Well, you could probably do this with a regular phone as well, but it was done with a rotary dial phone when I was a mere child where you just present a circle with circles inside it that replicates a rotary dial phone and you ask someone to fill in the circles with the correct letters and numbers. And no language-bound person ever did it correctly and only 3% of the language-optional people did. But the point is, it was a weird thing that seemingly had nothing to do with this ability to listen, but it does have some weird thing to do with how we process information. So my hunch is that there would be some weird thing like that, that would, it, that if you gave a, a handful of strange cognitive tests, just the people who were good at adapting to the exoskeleton and bad, you'd be able to identify, you'd be able to find some that had a high correlative factor that would let you know that person's going to be good or that person's going to be bad. And I would be willing to bet that the language bound language optional thing is a big part of it. Wait, I'm, I'm second guessing myself. Many people, when they hear the concept of language-bound, language-optional, they think, well, dancers, they're really language-optional. They're just in their body. And the testing that was done, this is from Ruth Day at Duke, was that some of the dancers, were most dancers, were the most language-bound people that she ever tested. They just process movement with this sort of linguistic thing if they make up a, a name or a sound for the things they're going to do so they know how to remember them and do them. But there was a reason I was going with that. But there, So there's, I, I'm sure there's some... Oh, so I was going to say that... I have a hunch that language optional people are better at learning new movement patterns than language bound people. But then I'm second guessing myself because these dancers are typically good at learning new movement patterns. They just have a language for doing that. So who knows? But it's an interesting line of inquiry, I think. So 
One thing that I'd like to jump in here and say is that uh, one of the really interesting things about our study is that all of our participants uh, ended up saving energy. They all learned to take shorter, faster strides and right. all saved energy. By the end of it. By, by the end of it, yeah. They took right. different amounts of time to get there. Right, but they all got there. Well, you're, I mean, applying a rubber band is a pretty significant constraint. It's not the same as just try and run in the following way. Just, you know, here's some video feedback of what you're doing. I mean, this is definitely giving them more feedback than I can imagine. I can imagine getting other ways of getting more feedback. I mean, biofeedback devices, et cetera. But this is, I mean, it's simplicity is its elegance. I mean, it's really, you know, it really kind of does it. Now, let me, let me just kind of cut to the chase on my end. So when I looked at the, the brief photographic and video information that you submitted with the paper, I, I contacted you because the first thing I saw was, well, yeah, they're taking shorter, faster strides, blah, blah, blah. But what they're doing is they stopped overstriding and heel striking. They're running like a quote, barefoot runner. They're getting their foot underneath them. They're landing more midfoot or forefoot, depending on their shoe, frankly, whether the shoe was getting in the way. They're running what we in, in the running world refer to running out of the back rather than running out of the front, which is just that they're not overstriding. They're just actually using their hamstrings, and their glutes properly. And, um, uh, I mean, it, to me, it, it just looked like the perfect version of what you want to do to get someone to stop being a classically overstriding, inefficient runner to becoming a more efficient runner. So just from a form standpoint, I didn't know about the, what you were seeing with VO2 max, et cetera. Right. So yeah, I specifically wanted to talk about one of our participants who was very stubborn. <laughs> All right, then. <laughs> so this, this person, and I, and I think using running as our, as our task for this experiment was, was kind of important here because I don't know if this would have happened with something like walking or some of the other tasks that people use. But basically, this one participant really didn't want to change his form. He was really adamant on sticking with the way he normally ran, uh, with, but even with there's a road ran or not. So, how, well, how did that manifest? How were you seeing that he was like committed to his existing form? I got really used to watching people run on the treadmill. Right. There were a couple of things that I would wait for to, to signal that people were adapting. And maybe some of those are not things that you really want out of, uh, out of your runners. But one thing that I could always hear is during the adaptation time, people would start relaxing and their, swinging, their swing foot would get lower and lower to the treadmill as it was coming forward. Right. Eventually, I would hear a scuff. And I knew once I heard that scuff, all right, we're, we're on. Um, <laughs> so what they would do is they would, they would just come, come down, we'd hear that a little scuff, and then they would back off of it a little bit. I knew we were set. Brilliant. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I've been watching a lot of people running on the treadmill at this point. I had a couple of cues I was looking for, and this guy was just not doing it. <laughs> he was adamant he was going to stick with it. And, and it was also great, too, because I had the, the VO2 on the screen just appearing in front of me as, as things were going. And he was just going higher, <laughs> higher. <laughs> so so you're, you're suggesting that an inability or unwillingness to change form along with a indication of the greater effort it was taking to do that, you're calling that stubborn? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, he really didn't want to try to yeah, do yeah, that. Yeah. He really wanted to stick with it. Interesting. Until the point when he couldn't anymore. 
So basically, at some point, he got too tired of fighting. Right. He had to relax. And from then on out, everything was fine. Brilliant. So <laughs> that, that's the, the case of our stubborn subject. I mean, but again, it's just, it's awesome. It's essentially, I mean, it's a combination of just the, well, whatever the feedback, whether it's external from the rubber band or the internal part of I'm too tired, you know, one of those things just is going to be the precursor to something changing. That's really fascinating. But, and so that was one person out of how many who had that issue? Uh, in the end, we had almost, we had about 20 people running. That's not bad. What's intriguing, actually hearing what you're describing, every now and then, doesn't happen very often. Someone who buys one of our sandals and decides to run in the sandals will call me and or email us and say, "Hey, the uh, the sandals are floppy." And I go, "No, they're actually not." And I'll hold one up and show that they don't magically, you know, bend in the wrong direction. They go, "Well, I caught the front edge of it on the ground and it kind of bent underneath me." And I said, "Yeah, just call me back in a week." They're like, "But what do I do?" I go, "Yeah, just call me back in a week." They go, "But what do I do?" I go, "Call me back in a week." And a week later, they'll call back and go, huh, that's weird. It stopped happening. So in a way, they're doing the same thing that this guy did is I say to them, you're, you're walking like you're barefoot and your toes are getting so close to the ground that that extra little quarter inch of the material, you're just catching it. But your brain's going to figure it out and realize that you just need to lift your foot a millimeter or two as, you're, as it's coming underneath your body and that'll stop happening. And that's usually what happens. I mean, it's amazing how much learning occurs completely unconsciously that people don't realize is something that they're doing. This is one of these things where coaching is also just an incredibly hard job. Like trying to get someone to change their behavior, to do any sort of physical task in just the right way. Right. Is we're trying to explain super complicated dynamic systems that we don't always have the vocabulary for. Well, even worse, a lot of the vocabulary is faulty. It's come from, you know, someone said something to someone, they eventually figured out what that seemingly meant, and then they just repeat that same sentence. So I had a coach, a good friend of mine, who 400 meter American champion, four by four world champion, who at one point we were doing drills and he says, you know, you got to get, got to get your hips over your feet at this spot of the drill. And I said, that's cool, but I'm in the middle of the air. I can't reposition my body in that way in midair. What you're really saying is that I didn't take off in a way that put my hips over my feet. And he's like, well, yeah, okay, I guess. Well, that's, I can work with that. I can't work with move your body and, you know, start spinning in circles in the middle of the air. Uh, Or my favorite, of course, is you go to any high school meet and you hear parents yelling to their sprinter kids, get your knees up. It's like, no, no, that's a reactive thing. You can't just actively lift your knees. That's not the way it works. So the the coaching thing, it's, it's tricky. It's funny. There's a guy named Ralph Mann who he was a, I think silver medalist in Munich in the four by in the 400 meter hurdles um, biomechanical engineer who's developed this whole idea about where your body needs to be to be a perfect sprinter basically and he developed well before the Xbox Connect unfortunately some software to to look at you compared to a perfect version of you and when I talked to Ralph years ago I got to call him again he said we know what we're trying to get them to do we just don't know how to get them to do it and in my mind this goes back to our biofeedback conversation I think there's there's just ways of teaching certain movement patterns that people haven't thought to do because they're so out of the box, like weird looking crazy. You know, why would I bring that giant ridiculous contraption to fill in the blank location? And, but fundamentally, I mean, learning a new move, movement pattern is really straightforward. You have to learn what it feels like, learn what, where it feels wrong, and then anchor that by just doing it often enough at the right speed with the right kind of reinforcement until it becomes a habitual pattern. I mean, right. it's doable, but most, but most people don't go there. 
there's another complication with some of these physical tasks, running or various sports, that if you're doing it wrong, you very easily could end up injured. Correct. And so I think that this also can can lead people to be somewhat risk averse. And we saw this a little bit with our, or we think we saw this. We, we don't have the data to, to say for sure, but we did a little <coughs> test where we put tons of different rubber bands and different stiffnesses and different lengths on people while they were running at that constant speed. Right. Some of the people, when we got to really stiff and really short rubber bands, were it, it basically they just switched switched into survival mode. Interesting. Um, we were not at that point. They're not really focused on. Oh, but I, you know, if I do this or that, I can be a little bit more efficient. They're like, I'm trying to survive to the end of this test. Oh, that's very interesting. Hmm. I'm seeing where that lands in my brain. I, think, <laughs> I mean, I think you're right, though. It's funny. Think about running and injuries. So as a sprinter, I got back into sprinting when I was 45, and I was getting injured constantly for the first couple of years. And I remember, I, I, almost, I vividly remember like the day that I realized I was no longer afraid of going all out. And after any injury, that's all I'm watching is like, you know, how long does it take till I'm unafraid to just go balls to the wall. And it, it's a fascinating thing. It's kind of like, do you ever have one of those things where you eat something and then for completely unrelated, you end up with a stomach bug and then it takes months till you can eat that thing that you had right before you got sick, completely unrelated. So I, I get that. I think it's a more subtle thing than even you're describing. I think that we, our sense of self is so tied into ways that we move. I think there's going to be some neurological thing where the way we put together an eye has to do with the way we we're used to moving certain parts of our body in certain circumstances, running, walking, sitting, whatever it is. And you start messing with that. Again, some people, people are more or less comfortable playing with their sense of self than others. So there's a combination of things that I think you were stumbling onto, which is all very interesting. And again, relates to what you're talking about is who's going to be the right person to jump in an exoskeleton, which is a, can be a freakishly terrifying idea, I imagine. I mean, that's well, what I would think. There, yeah. well, there are some scarier than others, but... Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah. In a sense, the rubber band is a, it's a, a little it's bit of an exoskeleton. Exos- yeah. It's a little bit of an exoskeleton. It's a little bit of an approachable one. It's yes. not a surprise. You, you always know what the rubber band is going to do. Right. Yeah. But another thing about our studies, so we recruited recreational runners as opposed to kind of more elite athletes. So we're not sure what, I guess, based off of some initial, based one initial test from one person who ran much more frequently, he was much more set in his ways and he did not want to, he was more resistant than this other subject that Cole was talking about. And because he had trained for so long and ran the same way for so long and so much, he was very resistant to changing his gait. So he was, uh, he was much more fit and able to fight for longer. That is also true. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's also not surprising. I mean, it's it's funny when when people talk to me about natural movement. I say, well, here's a couple conditions upon which you do not want to do this. And one is if you're a competitive athlete or, you know, you think of yourself that way, because if your livelihood depends on it, don't go doing anything different for now. I mean, absolutely. Unless you have a really good reason for it. 
And there are a lot of people who are high level recreational runners who still think of themselves that way. And they've been doing it fine. Everything's been going, you know, as well as one could expect. The number of injuries they've had is either low or they've just been able to write it off as like, that's just the way it is. And, and ironically, these are often the first people to try a new shoe that they think is going to make them better, but to actually try and change the way they're moving to make them better. We've got so long of just convincing people that some external thing is the solution. I mean, frankly, it's kind of ironic that we're having this conversation because here's an external thing that really may be a solution. But ironically, it's because it's just a shortcut to getting them to do the internal change of moving differently. Right. It's that push to try something different. Yeah. And it's, it's, I don't know, it's really funny. There's another version of this that I find entertaining where people will try and imitate um, like they'll look at some world champion marathon runner and try and imitate what that person's doing. And I have had to say to many people uh, on many occasions, you're not a 105 pound Kenyan. And, you know, they don't get that that's a whole different game. You're not a 105 pound Kenyan who's already one of the fastest people in the world, who's probably not going to be able to run after he's 35, but will have enough cash to take care of himself and the rest of his family and possibly village. So it doesn't matter to him. You know, it's a whole different game. And we just throw away those other aspects of the equation for some reason. So if you were going to do this experiment and continue this research longer, what would you want to look into? I'm sure it left you with as many questions as it gave you answers. Right. So one thing that we really wanted to do, but could never really figure out a way to, to do it in a very controlled way, at least on the scale of the resources that we have access to, is to try to see if we can actually help people to run faster. Uh, so, <laughs> so, all right. So I right, keep going. I, yeah. I so okay. the idea being a little bit that uh, if the rubber band is helping you to run more efficiently, uh-huh. you have a little extra gas in the tank. You can either go a little bit further or you can go a little bit faster for a set amount of time. So this is a very interesting Here. thing. So have you looked at, have you looked to see what the research says about VO2 max and performance? Yeah. Well, so I, I do want to draw a distinction that we were not really measuring VO2 max. Oh, okay. Oh, oxygen, yeah, that's right. Oxygen was being consumed. Correct. While doing the activity. So VO2 max is a separate test where you go as hard as you can. Until you can't. Yeah. And see what that, the maximum amount of oxygen you can take in is and how much, basically how much oxygen your body can process at a time. Correct. What we're looking at, how much is it processing when you're doing this activity? Got it. There's two ways to run further or faster. You can either move that maximum up, or you can do more with whatever you're using. Well, so that's an interesting thought. And here's my here's my thinking slash argument about it. I think there's so many other factors involved that I'm that at a certain like let's say within a certain range, I don't think it makes a difference. In other words, if we go to the Olympics and take the top 50 runners, we're not going to just give them a VO2 max test and hand out awards. And there's so much about the central governor theory about how much we deal with pain and discomfort and what that information tells our brain and how our brain is going to shut down our body before our body is ready to be shut down. I mean, there's just a whole bunch of things in there having to do with speed. Now, of course, the thing that I like about your investigation is the idea that this is still really applying to distance runners. So I would argue that they're probably going to be faster 
simply because they're going to be applying, or let me back up a little bit. Speed is going to be related to mass specific force. The more force you get in the ground at the right angle based on your mass, your weight, that's going to be two guys who weigh 200 pounds. The one who applies more force in the right direction is going to be faster, regardless of VO2 max or almost anything else. So given what you saw with rubber band where people were, their alignment was better. They weren't using the, the reason their I would argue their VO2 was improved is because they weren't having to use, let's say these big muscles and inefficiently. So it seems likely though, that if they're getting their feet underneath them, that's going to be just better for applying more mass specific force, the specific part being the right, uh, right direction as well. So I would imagine that they're, they, that the faster thing would be a no brainer. And I say this in part also thinking about the number of people who've you know, who we've gotten emails from who switched to zero shoes, who then set personal bests, arguably because they're just getting, they're getting their more force into the ground at the right angle by not overstriding, not heel striking, et cetera. The, um, the distance thing, I mean, maybe if they're running at the same cadence, then arguably they should be able to go for longer as well. But I, I would, my guess would be that they'd be running faster right away if you just let them out in the wild. So the thing with the, also another clarification. So so their form does change when they're wearing the rubber band. But so we did test to make sure that it's not just the form that's causing them to have the reduced metabolic energy. Oh. So the band is applying forces right. to their legs that alleviate some of the forces that their body would have to generate. Well, so let me ask about that because obviously the band can apply more force than you're creating by stretching it. I mean, it's just, this is just Newtonian physics 101. So what do you think's happening then? It's sort of like, it's about eight or nine or 10 years ago when I think it was Nike came out with some running shorts where they had some elasticized strips and they're saying, Hey, this is going to make you run faster. It's like, yeah, but you have to stretch the thing to begin with before it's going to come back. So what do you think you saw that was different than just being able to run with the form that you're learning by wearing the rubber band? So I think it comes down to energy recycling. So for the most part, when you're doing these eccentric contractions that we talked about, yeah. they're being used as a break. That breaking, the energy that goes into breaking is effectively thrown away. And then ah. you have to make new energy to speed like back up to do the concentric attack. Got it. So we're just taking the energy and just directing it down the rubber band so that it's work. Oh, that's very interesting. You know that there's never going to be a rubber band Olympics, but even still, um, <laughs> that's, that's really interesting. The funny thing about the rubber band Olympics, is just, <laughs> I, I saw an internet comment somewhere. You'd be better off probably to use the rubber band to just make a giant slingshot. <laughs> <laughs> that would be good. No, I think it, I could probably beat Usain Bolt's record if we did that. No, the way you, you beat, you could do that, but the way you beat Usain Bolt's record, there's a company called, I think it's 1080 Motion, 1080 Motion, and they make a, a, a device. It's basically a cord on a spindle that with an electrically controlled motor. So you can do two things with it. You attach it to your back and you run away and it's giving you a certain amount of resistance, or you can run towards it and it'll pull you faster. So you can do overspeed on a flat surface. Well, there's this one video of a guy who's a, you know, like a 9.9 hundred meter runner. And then he's attached this thing and pulling him. So he's running faster than he normally could of his own volition. And you see his coach like freaking out. And, and it took me a second to remember when I saw Usain Bolt break the world record, seeing someone run almost 30 miles an hour right in front of your face, your brain just can't even figure <laughs> that out. 
But so in other words, when this guy's doing overspeed, he's probably doing like 32, 33 miles an hour, which would look so insane in front of you. So that's the other version is just allow people to do the overspeed Olympics. And if you don't fall on your face, you win. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we were looking into the Olympic regulations. And oh, yeah. <laughs> I think what we found was the NCAA regulations that say that you're not, I believe that this is correct, that you're not allowed to use any device that's designed to enhance your performance. So that's a really funny statement. More broad. Well, right. But the shoes. Everyone's people, wearing these right. new Nike Vaporfly shoes are saving right. 4%. In, well, so. but, well but, you know, but see, that's an interesting thing because back to our VO2 talk. So it was Roger Crom here at the University of Colorado who's the first one who said 4%. But he then came out and said, but that doesn't guarantee that you're going to perform better. He finally said that. And, you know, and the math is really simple. Like you look at Kipchoge's, excuse me, sub two hour marathon, and that was not a 4% improvement. I mean, his, his improvement, his two minute improvement over his former world record time equates to roughly 4.6 seconds per mile faster. And they're going to, and they're going to claim it's the shoes that did that. I mean, he didn't run 4% faster by a long shot. That would have been almost a minute. Uh, well, there's and- also all the the pacers. The pacers, the, right. The pacers the and the drafting the and the perfect thing. thing. Yeah. Right. So the whole thing that people are always looking for the shoe as being a solution. And there's a guy uh, named Phil Maffetone. He wrote a book called 159. And his argument about the first person who would run a legit mm-hmm. sub two marathon without pacers and all the rest mm-hmm. was that they were going to do it barefoot because they would just be, you know, not having to drag the weight of a shoe around. So, but it would have to be on a really good course as well. Right. So, there, there is a little bit of a function of one, one kind of thing that we discussed in our paper is that the, the actual energy that goes into pushing you forward when you're running, yeah, only about 10% of that energy is lost to overcoming the air drag. At what speed? Because for sprinters, it's a different game. Exactly. So that is very velocity dependent. So for, for people in our study, way less than 10%. Right. I think that 10% was something like a five minute mile or something. It was 7%. At, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, it's a really small percentage of that energy, but it goes way up as you go faster. Right. So uh, 4% savings in energy, uh, but then there's more energy overall required to overcome that air drag. Possibly. I mean, Roger's argument was that everyone he tested saw a 4% improvement. And so, and I know some of the people who go into his lab, these are nationally ranked athletes or at least nationally ranked. So I'm, you know, I don't know, of course they're on a treadmill, so they're not getting the wind resistance. So there's that as well. But again, there's just that thing. Like I had this conversation with Lorraine Muller, who's a former, uh, she was a bronze medalist in Atlanta in the marathon. She won, I think Boston and New York, but don't hold me to it. And uh, somebody asked her like, you know, what was, what was it like about getting in the zone? And she did this whole, we're having dinner and she talked about what she did to get in the zone. I said, but Lorraine, for that period of time, you were just the fastest woman in the world, whether you were in the zone or not. Did you ever win races where you felt like crap? She goes, well, yeah. So it ever felt like you were in the zone and someone passed you? She goes, yeah. I said, well, there's that zone thing shot to hell. But you know, people were, A, you were super confident because you were that good. And B, other people were terrified of you. Yeah. So you know, you got to keep that in there. Like I said, I'm not trying to equate my situation with being an Olympian. I was an all-American gymnast. There was just a phase where in that area where I was competing, no one was going to beat me. And it wasn't even personal. It was just like I had a better routine that I could do better than anyone else around it was just geography it wasn't even 
I mean, it was some weird combination of things. But so there's so, but but again, it's so interesting. There's so many factors where we are looking for an external solution, and we think it's going to be the thing. Often, that big shoe companies tell you is the thing, despite a complete lack of credible evidence for it. But the rubber band thing, the fact that I'm just I'm just get backing up to the <laughs> fundamental thing it's doing is what was your term for energy efficiency? Recycling. Oh, thank you. Energy recycling. That's really interesting. What the hell can we do with that other than... <laughs> Man, there's got to be something. Well, you know, the, the common phrase in the shoe world, people use energy return. And I go, well, there's no such thing. It's just energy suck. And how, and how, much, is the, how much energy is getting sucked out of you by the foam in a shoe? And how does that relate to what your speed is, what your mass is, how, the, how long you've been wearing that shoe, what happens to the foam breaking down? And of course, you know, the big companies will not provide any information that shows any of that data to be useful in any way. Right. I think that's where Roger's work actually comes in very useful. He kind of does that independent analysis, pseudo-independent analysis. Well, look, Roger, we see each other at track meets on a regular basis, and, and I say hi to him, and he says hi back. But when I said to him, you know, you are a Nike-sponsored lab, I think that's when he stopped talking to me fundamentally. I think that and his papers say at the end of the you know, paid consultants of Nike. I'm assuming they have to. Yeah, yeah <laughs> to declare conflicts of interest. Yeah, and I'm, and and I'm not even saying that that the research is tainted as a result of that. I mean, yeah. I have I have said to him, look, you you did a lot of studies on barefoot running to basically show that barefoot is bullshit, and but you were studying things that no barefoot runner ever said was a real thing, like checking VO two max. We never said that running barefoot is you know improving your VO two max and making you more efficient in terms of oxygen consumption or oxygen usage. So that was just kind of kind of a straw man. But the other thing is, I know all the barefoot runners in town, and I'm one of them. And no one I know, nor I, have ever been in the lab. So I don't know what the cohort is you're using to demonstrate these things, but it's not a highly accomplished barefoot runners, for example. And you know that, I mean, similar to what you saw, actually, is people are resistant to doing something different and will put out way more energy to try and stay the way they've been doing it in conditions that are not optimum for doing that. So that's another thing is the moment you, if you're taking someone who's not, who hasn't run miles and miles barefoot on concrete or on a road and just putting them in, you know, taking off their shoes, they're going to be less efficient for a while. Um, right. I mean, ideally you would like to have the same person who's trained for as long on barefoot as training non-barefoot and then be able to compare them. So someone, one of my lab mates in the neuromuscular biomechanics lab did a study comparing rear foot and forefoot striking. And so right. she had essentially had to train people to go back and forth, whereas there's not an easy way to test someone who's no to test equivalent people who have ran for very extended periods of time barefoot and then extended periods of time with Nike shoes or whatever. Well, and there's, yeah. And even something like I'm going to teach someone to run uh, and land forefoot that's all fraught with peril because if they're overstriding and just pointing their toes and plantar flexing to do that, then that's not the same as doing it naturally. And again, there's speed issue. It's there. It's undeniably super, super complicated to do this kind of research and come up with something that's really meaningful across the board. Um, and that's what everyone wants to do is just have, you know, a single answer that applies to everybody. And that's why the simple answer is, Hey, look, new shoe. Yeah. So, it's interesting. Not even running. Yeah. New skis will help me ski better. If I get Tony Hawk's skateboard, I'll be a skateboarding pro. This is, uh... it's, you know, it's kind of like the research. I, I can't remember 
exactly how this study went, but it's something along the lines of, would you pay $5 for this sweater? Yes. What if you found out it was Hitler's? Oh, then I don't want it. Well, it doesn't have cooties. I mean, first of all, it's just an experiment, but there's like the weird things that we do like that, like I'm going to be better if I'm on Tony Hawk's skateboard, the weird way that we assign some sort of almost supernatural effect to objects is interesting. And I think a real thing, and also goes back to, let's call it a bit of a placebo effect for putting on a new pair of shoes. If you think you're going to run faster, you may be dealing with all those sensations that previously told you to stop running as like, oh, that's my signal to keep running. So there's, I mean, there's the whole psychological component that doesn't really get addressed at all because there's no material benefit for Nike to address that. We did do a small placebo effect cohort in our study where we essentially gave them a kind of office supplies stiffness rubber band and we told them, nice. oh, like this will make you run so much better. Like we've We're, shown that this works and like any food to the <laughs> It's going to be, it's going to be easy. Go for it. And uh, they did the exact same experiment. Yeah. Running with uh, a rubber band that was not doing anything. And And? at the end of it, they're like, yeah, I I think they were just being nice to us. They said, yeah, I think it helped. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So the the results showed that it did not, that it did not help that cohort, but they thought that, oh yeah, like it, Definitely. Did you ever did you ever watch Penn and Teller show bullshit? No. It was on Showtime. Was um, they did a thing where they went out for, in front of a, uh, a Whole Foods and had people tasting carrots. One was marked organic and one was marked conventional. And the people eating the organic carrots were like, "Oh my god, it's so much better." It was the same carrot. They just cut it in yes. half. <laughs> It was, it was such a good one. And of course, they didn't believe it once they revealed that. It's like, no, no, couldn't be. <laughs> so, sorry. So back to the, what else would you want to look into if you had more time slash money slash humans? Anything else? I, you know, for me, the entry question is really, I think, I think more than performance, more than anything else, I think injuries are really Big issue in running. And this, is the, this is the holy grail question. I mean, so this, again, there's a, a talk that our panel I was on at the American College of Sports Medicine against some guys from Brooks and Adidas and Irene Davis from Harvard asked the last question, I think, which was something along the lines of, you know, in the 60s, we were running in super thin-soled running shoes and playing basketball in Chuck Taylors. And we, we aren't see, weren't seeing the kind of injuries and the severity of injuries and even the type of injuries we're currently seeing. So what problem were you trying to solve and why didn't it work? And they had no answer to this. And so, so the injury thing, the fact that injuries have not gone down with the advent of all sorts of, quote, modern technology and footwear is a big deal. And of course, those, some people have said to me, well, you barefoot runner people will say that if someone's getting injured, it's all going to be form. And my answer is, yeah. I mean, not 100%, but by and large. I mean, because look, as a sprinter, should happen sometimes, you know, you can't control neurologically. These things don't work perfectly, but by and large, I would argue that the majority of injuries are form related. And I would again, argue that what you're doing in addition to the energy recycling part or separate from the energy recycling part is that you are getting people to run in what I would argue is better form, more efficient form, more natural form, where you're not putting the same kind of stresses through your joints and ligaments, for example. And this is the study that everybody wants and that the problem is that I don't think any big shoe company would ever pay for it because I think most of them know what, what the result's going to be. So one thing that we did show in the paper is that those joint torques that we, we talked about a long time ago do go down in right. 
cycles, during certain phases of the gait cycle. Right. And whenever these joint torques go down, there's an even larger decrease in the forces in the joint. Correct. Whatever torque is being generated is generated both by the muscles pulling across and also the body weight going through the joint. Correct. It, you know, we, we don't have enough data to really say anything about it. And it's really not clear now how that translates to an injury. It looks like, Depends on the injury as well. So like what I think Irene and, and what uh, Dan Lieberman would argue also at Harvard is that if you're an overstriding heel striker, if you're landing with your, your leg basically straight, you're putting force right through the joints. And there's animal studies that show you take a rabbit's leg and just keep hitting the bottom of its foot so that force is going straight through the joint and it very quickly develops arthritis. You stop doing it, the arthritis goes away. Research from Isabel Sacco in Brazil basically showed a similar thing. She just took um, older people, I think older women, but don't hold me to it, put them in some minimalist shoes and just said, you know, just wear these and saw a a reduction in knee osteoarthritis as a result. And, you know, these are very compelling. They don't get a lot of attention because there aren't multi-billion dollar companies profiting off of that. But I think the torque effect that you're seeing is going to be more related to muscular injuries is a hunch. And that the, the form-related stuff is going to be more related to joint things. And I know these things can't be separated, really. But my, my suspicion is that that's kind of what the causal factors might be. But, Injury studies are also very hard to control for because it's very – you don't really want to take someone and then injure them injure for them. time. <laughs> right. Well, you know, it's funny. There's a, a researcher named Brian Heiderscheidt who's, who I've chatted with. And Brian had someone – I think it was Brian who had someone in the lab who during a study got injured during the study. And they're like, Yes! Awesome, because <laughs> uh, they could actually see what happened during the moment of the injury. It's like, oh, and interestingly, back to the beginning of our conversation, actually, it probably wasn't Brian. It was somebody else, and I'm, I'm blanking on his name at the moment. But anyway, they were studying. This guy was a sprinter, and what happened is he pulled a hamstring during the eccentric phase as his calf is, you know, his leg is straightening out. That's when he pulled it. So, and, and when you watch sprinters, I mean, that's typically the the time that it, it all goes haywire. And we do have some ongoing studies. Our colleague, uh, Scott Ulrich, is working on a translational study of how even just something as simple as changing your foot angles, whether you're kind of toe in or just toe out, affects things like arthritis in the knee. So That's an interesting one since, that, since whether your feet are pointing out or not is often very highly correlated to what your glutes are doing since the glutes are um, external rotators. And one of the things that I see, you know, I don't th- you, you have to take a look. There's Irene does an event called the science of running medicine. And there's a, a yearly event called the mountain land running summit. Both of these are things that, that are put on basically to train physical therapists. Here's why people are getting injured. Here's what to do. You'd have a lot of fun at those events because there's some interesting cats doing this and they would get a kick out of what you discovered as well. But the, the toe and toe out is a, is a funny one. So Otto Bolton, who was the world champion 100 meter runner for a, a while, Otto ran with one foot like perpendicular to the other practically. And he was still a world champion sprinter. And people love to say, well, imagine if his feet got straight. Well, he may not be able to run at that point. I mean, yeah, well, what our colleague Scott found is that it's very subject specific, which angle like towing in or towing out is actually going to. Uh, reduce your knee adduction moment and so like decrease your risk of osteoarthritis and so i feel like that's another difficulty in biomechanic studies yeah. something that will help one person may not help someone else yeah there's just so many damn factors that because <laughs> i can see i, I can think of a, a couple things right off the bat 
that you'd have to control for that would be really hard to control to see how foot angle relates to that. Well, I know people have been probably wondering about this, so I'm going to ask the obvious question that has been just hovering over this for a while. If somebody wants to try this experiment on their own, what should they do? What do you think? I mean, the stiffness and the length of the band is in our paper, so it's very (laughs) easy to construct. (laughs) Well, it took us five minutes to make our first prototype with the blueprints, probably (laughs) even less. (laughs) So find something elastic, tie it between your shoes, See what the hell happens. Is the is the sh- that's that's the the shortest version that I can think of. Sort of like <laughs> a short, hard, fast run. And try not to fall. <laughs> Where, did you see that happen? We had a couple of near misses. We had one fall when only when the rubber band broke. Oh, interesting. And as Kara pointed out, that was someone that falls regularly anyway. I think she's closer to your type one person that she should be feeling all this pain as she's running or doing whatever activity she's doing. And then she just kind of doesn't feel it at all and continues on her normal way. Got it. Got it. Yes. Those are, those are the tricky ones. All right. So that's our simple advice is play with it and see what you discover. I'm all for it. You know, I, I say even just in the natural running space, the whole idea is that you're trying to become your own coach by experimenting. Like the first time I ran barefoot, I was so intrigued by the experience. I was trying different cadences, different foot placements, different speeds. I mean, everything I could think of because it was just so interesting. And I think we've lost that kind of curiosity and not that we've lost, just fewer people are interested in being curious and playing and seeing what happens than trying to find the thing that we just do over and over and over. Now, of course, ironically, I, I get curious and play because I want to find the thing that I can then do over and over and over, but I just don't have a clue, you know, what it is walking in the door. Um, so I, I'm really hoping that people do um, put this very simple invitation to the test and put something together and try it and see what they discover and that uh, we, we can give you some strange anecdotal field data from, from people who are doing this, which would be a blast. If anybody wants to find out more about the research, the study the paper that you wrote as a result or anything else you're doing, how would they, go about finding you guys or finding relevant info? Yeah, so paper is online. There's a free copy on Bayer Archive, which is just a repository of paper. So you say, spell it for people so they can... Yeah, so it's B-I-O-R-X-I-V. Yes. crazy, right? I'm so glad I asked you to do that. <laughs> so the paper's called Connecting Legs with a Spring Improves Human Running Economy. Carrie and I are both listed just on the author list so that should get people to it and yeah it's good start good start yeah. <laughs> well and i so hope we stay in touch i'm dying to hear you know the other things that you're working on this is all really really fascinating and i'm so glad you, there was other components to this that i had no idea about which are <laughs> really really interesting i didn't even ask the obvious question like why are you guys looking at running things at all and i know that Nicole, i know that you're a runner carrie you a runner I am also a recreational. I uh, see. Damn it. <laughs> it's amazing. People get paid just to study things they like to do. So, well, so once again, thanks. I really, really appreciate it. And, but, and let's definitely stay in touch and see how this evolves. I think you guys are, I love that you're, that you're looking at all these things from a very counterintuitive perspective, or at least from a perspective that's not kind of the traditional thing where 
a lot of labs are in many ways sponsored by shoe companies where they're like, here's a shoe, test it and see if it does the following. I know a couple of labs that have gone out of business because they never came back saying what the shoe companies wanted to hear. And so eventually they stopped getting offers. <laughs> they're like, well, I guess we're going out of the research biz, but you're doing some things that I find totally, totally fascinating. And that's, we could get into a whole other exoskeleton conversation as well, because there's way more there. Anyway, I'm going to wrap this up really quick by just saying to everyone, thank you all for listening. If you want to become more involved in the podcast, go to www.jointhemovementmovement.com. You can find all the ways to engage, to share, to like, to pass this on to all of your friends and family and people that you know and love and even people that you don't know and love. And if you have any questions, drop me an email, move at jointhemovementmovement.com. If there's anyone you think should be on this show to have a conversation about natural movement, just drop me an email and I will reach out to them. I think that pretty much covers it. So once again, thank you guys very much. And for everyone listening or watching, go have fun and live life feet first. You've been listening to the Movement Movement Podcast with host Stephen Sashin. Remember to join the tribe and subscribe at jointhemovementmovement.com.